If you have a Bible with you today, please open it to Romans chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you today, please feel free to borrow one of ours. In the pew in front of you, that black ESV Bible is going to have Romans chapter 5 on page 886. A couple of weeks ago, as I was reading and studying through Romans 4, I had a movie and a line from a movie stuck in my head, and that happened again this week. Um, It's a different movie, um, maybe fortunately, maybe unfortunately. Uh, But this week I had stuck in my head The Shawshank Redemption, which is one of my all-time favorite movies. I will, uh, every time I mention that, I feel like I have a need to say it is an adult movie. It is not not for children. It's got themes and and things in it that you wouldn't want your kids to see. Uh, So understand that. Um, Things in it that maybe you don't want to see. So maybe it's not for you. But I I have a a strong emotional attachment to that movie. I remember first reading the short story uh, by Stephen King, who is better known for his horror novels, but he has penned some of the best stories in modern literature, and Shawshank Redemption is one of them. It is a story about a man who is wrongly convicted and sentenced for killing his wife, and he has to live in prison dealing with the outcome of this injustice upon him. It is a story that is primarily about hope. How does one live for decades under the oppression of an injustice that is done to them? What role does hope play? All the characters in the movie clearly long for their freedom. They long and they have a hope that they might see the outside of Shawshank Prison. However, one of those characters, in getting his freedom, realizes that his freedom has forever been taken away from him. He, he leaves prison and lives for a short time out in the, the free world, but he does so without hope. Hope, it seems, is a dangerous thing. Hope is devastating when it doesn't follow through on its promises. The question then that the movie seeks to ask, should we hope? Should we invest in something that is that risky? Should we set ourselves up for disaster, for that crushing blow that comes when your hope is not met, when all of the things that you have been banking on are dashed? The person who suffers a tragedy suffers a tragedy even when they don't hope. But when they hope against that tragedy and they suffer the same tragedy, they have a double suffering that goes along with it. It is not just that they've suffered the tragedy that has befallen them, but they also have to suffer the shame and the despair of being so wrong about their hope. They probably feel as though they've been duped and misled. There is a foolishness that goes along with our hopes being dashed. But those who never let themselves hope do not have to fear. So, should we hope? I'm not stupid. I know you know that I'm going to say, yes, we ought to hope. No one in their right mind is going to stand up here and say, your life is hopeless. So, may God be with you. Have a good day. (laughs) I don't think I'm quite that coy. But I do want to say that having this sort of rightly optimistic view of what God has done for us is different than the hope that the world has to offer. We need to be clear as to what we're hoping in and what our hope looks like. Let us listen carefully to the words of Paul as he speaks about our hope in Romans chapter 5. Read with me, beginning in verse 1. There the word of God says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from him, by him, from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of our God. Let us look and read carefully through Paul and see what he is telling us about hope. First, let us see the blessings of hope. Let's see the blessings of hope. Paul begins by saying, we have three things. First, we have peace with God. We've been justified by Christ. Our sin has put us at enmity with God. We are enemies of him. It shows our disregard for his rules. In our sin, we have stood up to God and we have heard his commandments and we have said, no, thanks, we're good on our own. We know what is best for us. We are masters and commanders of our own little world. As we disregard his rules, we clearly show that we think that our desires are better for us than his. This calls into question directly his love for us, his power as we proclaim that we have the right to make our own decisions about these things. It calls into question his very being as God as we are setting ourselves up as God in his stead. If God truly is love and has the power to make all things come about and has the knowledge to know the future and seeks the good of his people, to deny him is to be at war with the very essence of who God is. This makes us enemies of God. But Paul says, we have been justified. We've been made right with God. We now have peace with God. Typically, when we think of peace, we think of it as, as a negation of war. We, we're not fighting anymore. There's no more bullets flying past our head. The Old Testament uses the word that people kind of bandy about a little bit of shalom. Shalom is peace. But it's not just the absence of war. Shalom and peace in Scripture doesn't simply mean that bad things aren't happening right now. It has a large positive connotation as well. It would be like looking at one of those war-torn cities anywhere after the war has passed through. And the buildings are crumbling and lives are battered. Yes, there's peace because there's no bullets flying around, but we would be wrong to think that there's truly peace that lives there. Peace is not simply the absence of war, the absence of fighting, the absence of strife. It is the idea of a fully reconciled world. It is the idea of a fully reconciled relationship, one that is complete, that is good, that is full, that is as it should be. 
It is not the war-torn streets. It is the rebuilt city that is at peace. When Paul says that we have peace with God, it's not just what we don't have with God anymore. It's what we do have with God. We are fully reconciled to him. We have peace with him. Secondly, Paul says we have access through him. We have also obtained access by faith to grace. If you try to define the difference between grace and mercy, it would be kind of hard to do. The two are not perfectly synonymous, but they're pretty clearly close to one another. I think that Paul gives us a little bit of an understanding of what the difference between grace and mercy is by saying now we have access to grace. Mercy is handed out to all, and it's handed out freely to all. For instance, Jesus says in Luke 6, You are to love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So Jesus says, you are to go out and you are to be kind and give people things. You are to even lend to them, even when they're ungrateful. Even when they don't say thank you, you hand them free stuff and they're like, meh, right? You are to keep doing that because that's what God does. He gives freely to people who are ungrateful, even people who are evil, who misuse the very mercy that he provides for them. Jesus ends by saying, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. God's mercy is extended to all. Whether they love him or not, the sun rose this morning on the evil and the just. It rose on those who desired to come and to worship God in holiness and in truth. And it rose upon those who wanted nothing more than another chance to curse his name. His mercy goes to all. But grace needs access. Grace needs a pathway. That pathway here is Jesus Christ. John, in the beginning of his gospel, says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. From His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Paul, even in the beginning of the book of Romans, says that grace comes through Christ, even to the apostles. We have received apostleship and grace through Him. Mercy is given to all, but grace is only through Jesus Christ. Mercy is the undeserved holding back of the wrath of God. While every single person, good and evil in this world, if we view them through our lenses, both good and evil, deserve the wrath of God upon them. No one is righteous, no, not one. Everyone deserves God's wrath. So every minute that God holds back his wrath is a minute of mercy. He holds it back so that you might repent. He holds it back to show his kindness and to show his goodness to us. That is what mercy is. We should understand that access to grace, grace is primarily not a negative thing. That's what mercy is. Mercy is holding back something. Not negative in terms that it's bad, but in terms that it's not giving us anything, but keeping something from us. In this case, wrath. But grace is a positive thing. Grace is the undeserved gift of God's full blessing. Grace is the overflowing cup. It is the the bountiful feast. It is the rest of the soul, the ending of pain, the relief of sorrow, and the joy of a home. You need to understand, God is God because in his fullness he is everything. He is not a neutral God, and he is not an indifferent God. There are people in this world who think that because they are not one of the monsters of society, 
They're not one of of the serial killers or they're not a, a ruthless despot. That somehow their penalty and their destruction that's coming to them will be light and airy. It'll be kind of like this existence which perhaps isn't great but perhaps isn't too terribly bad either. That is not how our God works. There are not those who will go on with their life stuck somewhere in between the monsters of hell and the saints in heaven living out a fairly normal life. God promises that there will be a hellish existence of pain and suffering for those who at war with God will stand in disobedience to him forever and there will be lavish gifts given to those who reconcile themselves through Jesus Christ. And you have access to that grace. So the third thing you have is boasting. Now the ESV interprets that word boasting as rejoice, and we rejoice in hope. If you check that out, there's a little footnote down there, and it says boasting. The reason why I think boasting is probably better is because Paul's already talked about boasting down in chapter 3, and he, he said in chapter 3 that all of our boasting is put an end to. We can't boast in ourselves because grace is a free gift that has been given to us, but we still boast. Paul says you boast in the hope that is given to you. You can understand why that's rejoicing. To boast in God is to rejoice that God has done the things that he has done. We cannot boast of ourselves, but we certainly should and can and will boast in what God has done. And here specifically, we boast about the hope of the glory of God. Please know what Paul means by that. I do not think that he means that we hope that God will be glorified by our lives. I don't doubt that that's true. That we speak of the goodness, of the holiness, of the grandeur of God, And that he is glorified by what he has done in our lives. I certainly think that Paul wants that to be true. And that he believes that that is true. But that's not what we're hoping for here. The peace that we have with God. The provision not just of keeping things from us, but giving peace to us. The access that we have to grace and the riches of Christ. Find that we boast even in the fact that we have a hope to receive the very glory of God. It is our hope for the glory of God. Not just that God is seen as glorious in us, but also that we partake of that glory. When I was an engineering student, my favorite class was thermodynamics. I loved thermo because I just, I got it. I understood it for some reason. And I always loved the idea of heat capacity. Heat capacity is how much heat something can take in, right? And you want to think of it, the word capacity is so good there. It's like having a small cup and a large bucket. You can only pour so much water into a small cup before that water begins to overflow. The cup has to start giving some of it back. It can't hold it in anymore. But a large bucket can hold a lot more water. The same thing works with heat. There's some things that have a larger reservoir for heat before they start giving it back out. They can suck it in and suck it in and suck it in, and they keep a hold of it a lot longer. We have a small capacity for God's glory as sinful people. We are like paper being placed into a red-hot stove. And when we come into contact with God's glory as sinful, we have no capacity for his glory. And it consumes us. In the resurrection, though, we are remade. And God gives us a capacity to stand in the glory of God himself. And we are able to be put into that furnace and not burn, but like a piece of iron, to be pulled out, radiating the very heat and the glory of God. 
That is what Paul says is the blessing of hope. It is the blessing that you yourself will, will be filled with and radiate out the very glory of God, that you will have that glory. Just like that piece of iron that comes out red hot from that stove, that heat is not that piece of iron. It didn't make it. It didn't produce it. But it does radiate it back out. The manifested goodness of who God is. That God is so filled with beauty, with love, with joy, with goodness, that he can't help but manifest it. It is seen and it is felt. It is, it is something like a, a concrete goodness that radiates out from who God is. The hope that Paul says that we have is that that is our lot. That he will one day remake us so that that goodness, that joy, that beauty, that holiness will be so able to be taken in by us that we will then radiate it back out not only to God but to all others. You will not look like you do today. You will be seen in a completely different light. That is the hope that what Jesus Christ has done provides for us. It is the hope of glory. This ought to be our boast. Not just that you're saved. Not just that you get to skip out on hell. That's great. Not going to hell. Check that box off. That's really important. That's a good thing. But God has better things than that for you. He wants to give you the fullness of his power and his glory, as much as you can control and as much as you can handle. He wants it to radiate off of you. Men on earth boast of what, in the end, have to be minor achievements. Some, some men collect a small bit of fame before they totter off this coil. Some are able to accumulate a good, good amount of wealth that will serve them no purpose in the end. Others have experienced wonderful things which a thousand years from now will be utterly meaningless. But we boast in that which is better, that we will forever stand in the glory of God, seeing it and radiating it back and forth to one another, knowing the fullness of his joy, his beauty, and his goodness. This is the hope that we have. That is the blessing of the hope. Secondly, let's talk about how that hope is produced, the production of hope. In verses 3 through 5, Paul says, not only that, but we rejoice, and that word rejoice there is the same kind of thing, that we boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul is very quick to explain, you might have peace with God, you do not have peace with this world. And it's not even a suffering that necessarily comes from the outside world. It's just the suffering of being somebody who lives in this world. Your bodies are still frail and weak. They are prone to sickness and aging and even death. But there is also the fact that Jesus looked at us and said, hey, if they hated the master, they will certainly hate the servant as well. You are not greater than him. If you are loved by God, you will be hated by the world. James 4.4 reminds us that to have friendship with the world is to be enemies with God. So while we boast in the hope of glory, we remember immediately that glory seems a long way off. 
Gloria is quite distant from us. And while we exist here, we know suffering because this is not our home. This will never be our home. There will be a day when Jesus Christ returns and transforms it to be our home. But in the meantime, this isn't our home. We are sojourners in a foreign land with powers and rulers who do not respect us and who do not know us. Paul says, this is how hope is produced in us, through our suffering. It's not some sort of sadistic tendency we have. We want pain, like those people who sign waivers to eat really hot chicken wings that melt your face. I don't know why. If you have to sign a waiver to eat a food, you shouldn't eat that food. I'm all for hot food, but that's ridiculous. And we're not, we're not like sadistic like that. We're not like, yay, suffering. We're, we're not excited about it. Paul, Paul doesn't want to suffer. He, he's not telling you, you ought to rejoice in sufferings. As though you're praising them. But you boast in them. Just like James would say, you count it joy when you face trials and tribulations. For the same reason. Because God has good plan for it. And this brings to mind immediately the idea that, friend, you are never being punished by God if you are a Christian on this side of the earth. We talk about our sin having consequences, and, and your sin does have consequences. If you sin against your body, your body might have the lingering effects of that sin for decades to come. You might die with that. Sometimes your sin has problems with the relationships, and those hurts will take years, if not decades, to heal if they ever do. Sometimes your sins will have financial consequences on you that you will never overcome. But you are never to think, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if the Holy Spirit has been given to you, if Christ died for your sins, that you are ever being punished by God. Now that is not to say that no one is being punished by God. If you are an unbeliever here, you need to know very well that you could be punished by God. He might be giving you a small taste of what hell looks like so that you would run from it and run to him and repent and know the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. But if you are a believer, there is no punishment for you. Jesus Christ has taken your punishment. God never punishes you for your sin. Not heavily in hell or lightly on earth. So Paul does press this home. There is going to be suffering. The Jews and the Gentiles who have confess Jesus Christ, will be ostracized by society. They will suffer in their families and in their relationships. They will suffer economically. And Paul needs to explain this reality because this is, this is really weird for Gentiles. Bad things happen, they believe, because the gods are upset with us. So if we placate the gods, things go well. So if God is happy with us, things ought to go well. If things aren't going well, that means God isn't happy with us. And Paul says, no, no, no. It's exactly the opposite of that. God is happy with you. God has been reconciled to you. You have peace with God. So if you suffer, it's not because God is angry with you and trying to punish you, but rather, believe it or not, because God has better things planned for you. So he says, your suffering leads to endurance. You suffer, you begin to strengthen yourself against that suffering. You begin to build up a character. You begin to build up fruit of the Spirit. 
You begin to learn what it means to love your enemies only when you have enemies. You begin to learn what it means to be a patient person only when you have to wait. You begin to know what it's like to truly have joy in you that can't be extinguished only when it seems like that joy should be extinguished. Paul says that these things are given to us to build up this character. And notice how, how absolutely backwards this is from the world. We think that, that hope should only be found when things are going well, when we have reason for hope. Sufferings which will produce in us on our own bitterness and anger, jealousy and spite, because of the work of the Holy Spirit in us, should now produce love and kindness and contentment and forgiveness for those who sin against us. The reason why this produces hope in us is because by our suffering and the characteristics that that the Word of God and the work of the Spirit bring forward in us, we are assured that the Holy Spirit is there working. That's what he says. Because the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, it is an assurance that the Holy Spirit's working in you. When you suffer... And you don't become bitter, but you become softened by it. When you suffer wrong at the hands of others and you learn what it means to love them, even in their sin, you see that the Holy Spirit is working in you because that's not the normal human response. That's not my response. And I, I, would, I would go a long ways to say it's probably not yours either. So when these things happen, it is clear that it is the work of God in us. It provides for us hope that God has indeed provided the Spirit to us. He has poured his love into us so that we are changed and not the same that we were. We need to remember that this is suffering, not for doing wrong. Peter says this, This is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. In other words, listen, if you do something foolish and you're penalized for it, you shouldn't think, well, this is producing character in me. It might produce character in you. It might produce the fruit of repentance, but that's about it. Otherwise, what Paul is talking about is this sort of suffering that is unjust or suffering that, that you did not call upon yourself from the world. When you endure that, it produces in you hope because you see the work of the Spirit in you. Our third point, then, is the security of hope. You could listen to what was just said. And you could say, oh, okay, but now we're just hoping that suffering produces hope. It's still just wishful thinking. How are we supposed to know that our hope won't actually lead to shame? How do we know that our hope won't let us down devastatingly? Because all that Paul has said here is that we have a hope, and that hope is produced from suffering, and we're hoping that the suffering produces hope. But frankly, that's still just, it's just hope. It's baseless. It's groundless. How do we know that God is actually for us and working in us? This is a major issue, and you you read through Scripture. There will be times in your life when you're going to suffer, you're going to cry out to God, and He will not answer you. Our Lord spoke it on the cross. David wrote it in Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groanings? David says, I'm, I'm 
groaning out in pain and in suffering to you, and you're not near. How do we know that God is near? How are we to know that our suffering is actually producing hope, that it's true hope? We can come very, very close to wondering if God even cares about us. So what we actually want is we want some sort of concrete reality that we can look to outside of our emotions, outside of our experience. Because there will be times, friend, even the most faithful Christian, there will be times when God will feel far from you. There will be times of your life when you are dry. And it could be a time of hardship. It just, it could come out of nowhere. You will read scripture and it will be a page and there will be very little talking to you. You will pray to God and those prayers will get about two foot off the ground, shake a little bit and crash. And you will hear nothing from him. It is in those moments that you need security in your hope. What is it that actually provides you an assurance when you don't feel like it? An assurance when you can't gin up the faith, an assurance that God truly is for you. Paul says this, while we were still weak, notice the weakness there. When we're weak in the faith, when we're weak in our bodies, when we're weak in our souls, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, he, he has this little thing in verse 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. It's difficult to understand exactly what Paul means there. I think that he means something along these lines. Even if somebody is righteous, that does not provide enough reason for you to die for that person. Right? There could be somebody a long way away from you, who is truly righteous. But if you don't know them, if you don't love them, then you are far from them. It is impossible to think that you're actually going to die specifically for them. No matter how righteous they might be, they, you could have the reports of this man being the greatest man on the face of the earth, and you need to die for him, and you would say, well, I don't really know him. He says, though, perhaps for someone who is good, Perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. What Paul doesn't mean there is objectively good from God's perspective, but he means good from your perspective. If he has helped you, if he has done right by you, the idea here is one of a friend. You might die for your friend. You might die for one who has shown himself to be good to you. You might die for someone who is kind to you. You might do that. The result is not much different from what Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 46. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If, if somebody is good to you and you love them, you might be willing to die for them. And Paul says, but you've got to balance that out and compare that to what happens in Christ. But, he says, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. While, while we were unjust before him, while we were raising our fists against him, while we were standing in rebellion against him, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. You, you have no better proof of God's objective love for you that it can't be based on anything that you do. Before you knew that you were a sinner, 
Christ died for you. Before you knew how to reconcile with him, Christ died for you. Before you were born, before you breathed, before you said anything good or bad, before any sin came out of your body, before anything that you have ever done that deserved the eternal wrath of God, God had already provided forgiveness for you in Jesus Christ. He didn't provide a list. Say, hey, listen, you got a couple of things to work on. Attitude being number one. Then watch your mouth. You get done with those things, come back, and we'll start to work on some other stuff. And we'll, we'll get you to a place where I, I can see this working. Right? He, he doesn't tell you to kind of shape up so that he can be one with you. But before you ever knew you needed him, God preactively came to the earth and died for your sins and provided you with forgiveness. There are people out there who don't know that they're sinners, are told that they're sinners in one breath, and the next breath told that Jesus Christ has already forgiven their sin if they trust and believe. God has provided everything for you so that when you don't feel him, you can look back and you can say, when I was a sinner, Christ died for me. He doesn't, you don't go to God and say, you know, I've been thinking, I'm a pretty wretched guy, and so I would really like if there could be a way that you would make it so that I could be forgiven. And God says, oh, well, I guess I could do something. You know? I, I will, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what, I, I will take on flesh and I'll die for your sins. Right? God doesn't wait for you to come to him. While you were sinners, Christ died for you. That is why you can always be secure in the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. Because he has died for you. He has died to take the wrath of God for you. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Because Christ died for you and took the penalty, there is no more wrath for you to experience. He has extinguished it. It is gone. And therefore we can turn to our fourth point this morning, and that is the place of hope. What is the place of hope? Where do we go to find this hope? Continually through this passage, there is one point of hope for us. There is one place to go for hope, and that is to Jesus Christ himself. When Christ died, he took away our sin and its penalty, the very thing that made us enemies of God. Our sin was nothing short of rebellion against God's kingdom. A decisive fist raised into his face. If you're a lover of Shakespeare, it's biting your thumb at him. You're more modern, it's given him two big middle fingers right up. And it's telling him, I don't need you, I don't want you, I don't have anything to do with you. I will be separate from you in every way that I can be. You give me laws, I'll break them. You tell me what is good, I will tell you that I don't care what you think, and I will do it on my own. Our sin, no matter how lightly we want to couch it, no matter how light we want to make it, is nothing but rebellion against God's kingdom, and it is setting ourselves up as our own lords and masters, as our own gods. The problem is, reality doesn't work like that. God is God everywhere. But Jesus Christ has suffered and died. And the penalty that you deserve for your rebellion has been taken by him. We have no reason to fear his wrath. It has been spent on Christ instead of us. Reconciliation has ended our rebellion. Propitiation has ended our penalty. 
Paul says, how much more then shall we be saved by his life? You know what Paul means by that? And again, we, we come back to this incredibly positive side of salvation. When Paul says we've been saved, he can't possibly mean there that we are simply not going to go to hell. Because he's already said we have been saved by the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we're reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Right? If in his death we're reconciled, but now much more are we saved, it can't possibly be that you're simply escaping hell. The word that we use for saved is used for other things as well. It's sometimes used to describe healing. So in Matthew chapter 9, we read in verse 20, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years. We don't have time to get into the fullness of the passage, but that would have been an unbelievable burden on a woman at that time. Unbelievable. You have probably, I don't know your situation, but it's unlikely that you've ever felt as alone as she has felt for 12 years. No human contact for 12 years. She suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned, seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. Every time that word well is used, it's the same word for saved. Salvation is not just an escape from hell. Salvation is being made right. Again, in the resurrection, God will make you right again. You are weak, he will make you strong. You are frail, he will bind you up. You are broken, he will make you well again. You are not just escaping hell. He is giving you the fullness of all of the blessings. He will look at you on the final day, and as he said in Genesis 2 or Genesis 1, so he will say again, it is very good. And that declaration will never be taken away. He will make you very good. He will save you because you are, as Jesus is, in the resurrection. A body that is immortal, a body, a body that, that will not suffer pangs of death, a body that will not suffer from frailty or weakness anymore. He will save you. We know that because it's in Jesus. What happens to Jesus has happened to us. By faith, we are united to him. In his death, we have died. In his life, we live. His resurrection will be our resurrection. He is the first fruits. So our result is yet again, we boast in him. We rejoice in him, in God, through Christ. All of this, through Christ. He is the very place, the center, everywhere we go to find hope is in Christ. Boast like this. Boast about what Christ has done for you. Rejoice about the salvation that's been given to you. Not simply that you don't suffer eventually one day but that far from suffering, you have a body 
that can never suffer again. Far from suffering, you excel in everything. You are made complete in joy, in goodness, and in glory. Why do we hope? We hope because Jesus has died and risen. Our debt is paid to the last. Our resurrection and our hope is assured, for it has already happened in Christ. So friends, don't fear. There's much to be anxious about and to fear in this world. There's much. The world is tumultuous. It's filled with troubles and pains. It's filled with problems and frustrations. And you will have to concern yourself with those things. But in the end, no matter what kind of curves this world throws at you, no matter what kind of problems you face in this world, God is on your side and you have every reason to hope in Jesus Christ. All that comes to your way is for your good. God will do right by you. Even when you are wrong, God will do right by you. Trust in Christ. So where is our hope, friends? It's only in Jesus Christ. Well, an excellent movie. This is the key problem with Shawshank Redemption. Andy and Red do get out. They do escape. They get to live their days on a beach, friends forever, working on boats. What could be better? Truth of the matter is, though, hope generally doesn't work like that. People who suffer in prison and who are given life sentences in prison die in prison. Life is tough for them when they get out. This world is filled with issues and problems that simply relying on a blanket hope is never going to solve for you. You are not going to hope your way out of death. Andy wrote to Red in that movie, hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. There are people all over the world right now who are hoping for things that will never come to them. There are people all over this world who are hoping for life and they're going to die. There is only one who is good, Andy. There is only one guaranteed hope in this world. There is only one place to go to finally have a hope that is lasting as we've sung an anchor that is secure and sure for us in all of the storms of this world. There is one and it is Jesus. It is not some sort of wishful hope that can be dashed against the rocks of the storm, but it is the very rock that dashes all other hopes. Therefore, it is sure and steadfast. Our hope in him is secure and sure, forever sealed by his blood. Hope is a good thing, only when placed in Christ. And there. We can hope in him today and tomorrow and forevermore. And we can boast and rejoice in the work that he has done for us. Let's pray. Father, show your grace to us again. May those here know again that you are, you are great and you are glorious. And how good is your gift of reconciliation. Through the work of Jesus Christ, we know you as Father, not as a God of wrath, but one of love and kindness. 
For those who may not have trusted in you before, give eyes to see and ears to hear. Give faith in abundance. Pour out your spirit upon them that they might trust and believe in him. Give us who have already believed hope in faith. Let us persevere and be built up in that hope through the sufferings of this world, putting our hope in the sure hands of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We ask these things for our good and for your glory. Amen.